Imagine your friend invites you to a party. You arrive and there's lots of people, decorations, food and drink. There's enough for everyone. When you're hosted by someone that generous, you don't have to worry about your needs. You can just enjoy yourself and focus on the people around you. Yeah, that's what a good host wants for her guests. And this is the picture of the world that we find in the Bible. Creation is an expression of God's generous love. He's the host and humans are his guests in a world of opportunity and abundance. And we're called to keep the party going, to spread his goodness. This is a beautiful picture, but it's not the way people experience the world. Rather, we find a world of scarcity and struggle, not abundance. And Jesus grew up in that kind of world. Under military occupation, people losing their land or families to debt and poverty. And yet, he would say things like this. Look at the birds. They don't store up food for themselves, yet they have enough. Or consider the wildflowers. They're beautiful and abundant, and they don't stress about their existence. And you all should live that way, too. But surely Jesus knew that things don't always work out. I mean, sometimes there really isn't enough. And Jesus did experience poverty firsthand, but he viewed the world through the story of the Hebrew scriptures, which claimed that our scarcity problem isn't caused by a lack of resources. Rather, the problem is our mindset that God can't be trusted. Maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe there isn't enough and maybe I need to take matters into my own hands. And once we're deceived into that mindset of scarcity, we can justify the impulse to take care of me and mine before anyone else. And that leads to envy, anger, violence, and a world where it seems like there's not enough. The party's over, it's turned into a battleground. Let's pray. Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So for the very last sermon about stewardship and giving, we're gonna, I want to talk about the, the different ways that the world approaches the topic of, of work and money and generosity versus what the Word teaches us about those things. So we're going to start in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. Really short little verse, but it's referencing two different laws from the Old Testament because Paul is a good Jew and he knows all the laws. Right? And the first one, right, you can't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain because you use the ox to separate the grain from the stalk and from the chaff, and, and then you use the same ox to grind all that grain into flour. And if you've never you know, been around a cow or an ox, um, they're hungry animals and they eat a lot, right? If you have a really large, hungry animal and it's, and it's working and it's pulling this big millstone to grind out all the grain, it's going to get hungry and it's going to start eating the grain that it's grinding. So most of the time you would put a muzzle on it so it couldn't do that because they can eat a lot in one sitting. And God says, no, you're not allowed to. If you're going to make the animal work, you're going to let it eat whatever it wants. And that is so wildly counterintuitive for them. 
because it means they're going to lose a lot of the food they have worked so hard to grow. And the second is the laborer deserves his wages. It's literally part of a law that, that is instructing people to pay their workers promptly, right? It's relatively straightforward. If you hire someone for a job, don't make them wait to pay. If you promise to pay them at the end of the day, pay them at the end of the day. The laborer deserves his wages. God made us to work to bring him glory. Our work has intrinsic value beyond just making money. But a byproduct of fruitful work is wages for everyday living. But we were made to work. God's first command to humans was to take care of his garden. By design, work was to be a joyful participation in God's act of creation. And the fall changed things. It made work tiresome and dull, even dreadful for some cases, but we still have to work. And the world has its own ideas about work, which stand at odds with the ideas that the Word has about work. The world teaches us that the purpose of working is to make as much money as possible. And so work then becomes a necessary evil to get money to get everything else that you want. And if you happen to find a job that you love, then that's great. You're very lucky, but that's not the point of work. But the Bible says the opposite. The Word says in Genesis 2.15 that we were made for work. And when we work, we bring glory to God. Now, the world teaches that smart workers get other people to do their work for them. The world teaches us to do whatever it takes to climb the corporate or social ladder. But the Word teaches us that faithful workers use their God-given gifts without reservation. And that faithful workers serve the people around them instead of seeking to climb above them. The world teaches that the value of work is purely instrumental. What matters is getting the job done and getting paid. How you get the job done is unimportant. But the Word teaches us that work has both intrinsic and instrumental value. Work is both the means and the end. The world teaches us that the function of personal gain is to stockpile money for myself. That I earned this money, it's therefore for me and my family. But the Word teaches that the function of gain is both enjoyment and sharing. God enables us to make money, and therefore it is His before it's ours. The world teaches us that great workers earn as much as possible, as quickly as possible, and then retire as soon as possible. But the Word teaches us that great workers work. That faithful workers find opportunities for fruitful service to the Lord right up until their dying breath. The laborer deserves his wages. The ox deserves to enjoy the fruits of its labor. We are meant to earn our income. We are meant to enjoy our income, and we're meant to be generous with our income. But we are not meant to treat our income and our work the same way that the world does. Now, I should point out, right, because of the, the group I'm speaking to, if you've retired from your job, that's not a sin. Okay, it's fine. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not condemning you for retirement. I'm saving for retirement. So it's but it does mean we approach the subject a bit differently. We don't retire so we can go off and live the easy life. We might retire from 
a career, but we still find ways to serve. The world doesn't let the ox eat the grain as it works because the world is all about maximizing the profit, even if it comes at the expense of the ox. And frankly, the world doesn't care if you deserve your wages or not. The world cares about how much you can get and how quickly. Because that's what it's all about. We have to approach it differently. The way we do things matters just as much, if not more, than what we do. Better to fail with integrity than to succeed with dishonesty. And that in and of itself could be an entire sermon series. And it's something to bear in mind also as we go into an election year. Better to bring someone in who will fail with integrity than lead without it. So we're going to skip ahead into Hebrews chapter 13. And just one verse, verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We have to be careful to distinguish the love of money from money itself because one of the most misquoted verses of the Bible is, is when Paul says, the love of money is the root of all evil. And people misquote it saying money is the root of all evil. No, the love of money is the root of all evil. And bear in mind that in the ancient world, there was a God of money who people worshipped. It was very tangible for them if they had that love. But this is, in, in many ways, you can take this as a verse that, that gives us a glimpse into the biblical concept of saving money. Because saving money is not about hoarding our money here on earth. It's about living with contentment on less than we make so, so that we have a margin to live and share with others to show God's love. In other words, saving in a biblical sense is not about our own security. And that is a fundamental shift from the way that the world approaches the topic of saving, which is all about your own security. The world teaches us that the purpose of saving is to accumulate as many assets as possible for our own security because saving secures a comfortable future for you and your family. But the word teaches us to set aside money for uncertainty, not security. We live on less than we make because we recognize that we are not in control. And we cannot take control. In other words, we're supposed to save not to control our future, but precisely because we understand we can never control our future. We save because we recognize we cannot make ourselves secure. The world teaches us to save money, to hit the right number, to retire in comfort and live the good life. But the word teaches us actually to set aside money, not just for you, but for others in all seasons of life. And so while the world teaches us to chase financial freedom so we can avoid being dependent on anyone else, the word encourages us to be financially free so that we can help care for others recognizing that no one is ever truly independent. And you begin to see there are so many similar ideas here, but there is a subtle difference in the motivation. 
What matters is why you're doing it and how you're doing it, not that you're doing it. Because the world and the word will both teach you to save. They will both teach you to work towards financial independence, but they have very different ideas about how and why. Because, see, the underlying motivation for most people, for, the, for hoarding their assets, for saving as much as they can, is fundamentally a fear of the future. They're afraid of what the future holds. But we don't have to fear the future because we know what the future holds and we know that it's good. We don't need to save for fear of the future. We need to save because we don't know how God is going to want to use us in the future. See, the world teaches us that life is short and so we should live it up and enjoy it as much as possible while it lasts. But the Word teaches us that life never ends. And we can learn to enjoy a life content with God. And in fact, it teaches us that we had better learn to enjoy a life where we are content with God because in the future, God is all we'll have. That that all the wealth we might accumulate here in this world is going to go away one way or another. But we can never lose our God. So we come to the very last verse I'm going to read to you today. In Colossians chapter 1. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, there's a connection between being filled with the knowledge of God's will and walking in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And the world knows that. And the world will try to confuse you. It will try to lead you astray. And so long as your knowledge of God's will is only theoretical, you're going to struggle to stay on the right path. It's when we put God's will into practice in our lives that we become unshakable. You can be confused and deceived by what you haven't seen, but you can't be deceived by what God has already done and is doing in your life. When you take the principles of biblical living and actually put them into practice, you can't be deceived anymore. It's when we put God's will into practice that we begin bearing good fruit, increasing in our personal knowledge of God and growing in holiness, which is what we are supposed to do all along. And see, the enemy doesn't want that. And so he floods the world with lies, lies that tell us that we are to see to our own security, lies that convince us that we need to enjoy life while we can because it's short and fleeting, and lies that tell us that we can't rely on God. And we believe them because they give us the illusion of control. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we are in control. We can take control of the situation. We can guarantee our own security. We can solve our own problems. And in doing so, we're only going to make them worse. John Wesley urged his followers to 
earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. And to flesh that out, he very clearly believed that the whole purpose of earning all you can and saving all you can was precisely so that you would be free to give all you can. And this is the gospel approach to stewardship and generosity. Jesus asks us to give, but he also asks us to give both generously and joyfully. Joyfully. And this is to be our our biggest financial priority as followers of Christ. Everything else we do, we do in service of that goal. What must we do to get to a place where we can be joyfully generous if we're not there already? That's the question. And certainly we have to reject the teaching of the world and embrace the teaching of the Word. And understand that every act of generosity, no matter how big or small, every act of generosity is an act of worship. It's an acknowledgement that God is in control and we are not. It's, It's an expression of gratitude for all that he's given us. And most importantly, it is an extension of God's love for us into the world. So in a few moments, when you come forward to leave your pledge cards on the altar, remember what you're doing. You are worshiping. You are loving. And you are being the hands and feet of Christ. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.